Let's pray before we jump in. Father, so thankful for the opportunity to read your word. This is not something that is available to a lot of people. And Lord, we really are privileged people to not just be more knowledgeable about you, Father, but to move forward in a confidence uh, like no one else can have, to be faithful and to learn from the mistakes of others. Uh, Please bless it to our hearts and minds. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Deuteronomy, and we are actually, uh, hopefully, going to be finishing up three and and stepping into four. Uh, And if if I recall correctly, and I'm just going to go ahead and ask this first, we had homework from last week. Raise your hand if you have your homework. Okay, so we all need to petition the Lord for mercy. Does anybody remember what the assignment was? Yes, Genesis 15, 16, when it talks about that that God will bring Abram's group back up, he will not do so until the iniquity of the Amorite is full. And my encouragement was, if you can take a Bible dictionary, maybe look up Amorites, find some commentaries you might have on Genesis, or uh, I think Pastor Steve told me today we have 7,900 volumes in our library right now. That's how big it is. Uh, But we've definitely got some commentaries on Genesis in there. And if you would look up exactly what does that mean, the iniquity of the Amorites is full. How should we understand that? So guess what your homework is for next week? Same thing. Let's let's do that. Everybody get involved and checking it out would be good. Uh, Genesis 15, 16, if you need the reference. And what does it mean by the iniquity of the Amorite being full? Very important stuff. So we're in chapter 3. I'm going to put you on the spot now. Last week I gave you a, a brief, probably 10-minute overview since we'd taken uh, a break and, and get everybody back up to speed. What's going on in Deuteronomy right now where we're at, middle of chapter 3? What's happened so far? We'll see what we can put together. What's that? Okay. So it's an overview from things that have happened the last 40 years that they've been wandering around. What are some specific events that we come across? What's that? They were afraid of the giants, but did they conquer the giants? They did. In fact, if you remember, they talked about his bed is located in Ammon. Remember, it's 13 feet long, 6 feet wide. That's how big this guy was. Yeah, they even defeated the giants in the land. The Lord handed that victory over to them. What else? Anybody remember who the giants were affiliated with? What the guy's name was? Man, everybody turn open to Deuteronomy chapters 2 and 3. Og of Bashan. Everybody remember him? Og of Bashan. In fact, can we throw the, the map up there, Mitch? Just give the whole land is fine. Yeah, just throw one up there. We'll use it. Yeah, the land of Bashan right here. Notice, Sea of Galilee. So we're talking more up north is the idea. Bashan's here, and it actually stretches all the way up to the tip, comes all the way down to right here, the Jabbok River. This is what is known as Gilead right here in this section. And what we're going to talk about today, which is interesting, is over here in this area right here, this is what's known as Lebanon. There's a mountain range that comes across here, Lebanon. We're going to see why that's important today. The other king that was defeated... Uh, was a guy named Sihon, okay? Sihon is his name. 
Uh, and in fact, Sihon was, um, Heshbon is the name of it exactly. Can we zoom out to a bigger map? We've got more of the land on there. Is that okay? There we go. So the idea of Heshbon is right here. So if you remember, right here's the line. They traveled up this direction. Edom, descended from Esau, Moab, and Ammon. Well, Ammon right there, but this part as well. Ammon is descended from Lot's line. Come up through this direction. They had these battles. Sihon, king of Heshbon right here is what they dealt with. Then they got Og of Bashan. And notice that Bashan stretches this entire length right here. Gilead, Bashan, the whole deal. It was 140 miles long that the Lord delivered into their hands. If you remember, they talked about with Og of Bashan, we defeated 60 cities. They were fortified. They had gates. It was strongholds. It was military-grade stuff at that time. And yet the Lord delivered it into their hands. So what we're actually picking up is, is if you remember, once they conquered this land, they began to settle this land. They began to go ahead and take advantage of the opportunity of inheritance. Anytime that we read the word possess the land, we're talking about inheritance in the situation. By possessing the land, the reason why you had Reuben, the reason why you had Gad, and the reason why you had half of the tribe of Manasseh ask for these lands is because they had so much livestock that they needed some place to feed them so that the family business would stay going. Well, this turns out to be a very fruitful and fertile land. And why is that? It's like that because the river goes out here, river goes out here, river goes out here, river goes up through here and serves as a boundary. It comes out the top there. So what you've got is constant resources in order for your flock to be able to survive, for your herds to be able to survive. And so they grant them to settle there. But what was the condition for them being able to settle in that part of the land? Real quick, Mitch, do we have one of the ones where it's, where it's got the actual plots color-coded where the tribe settled? Do we have that map? What's that? They had to help finish conquer. So notice here, Reuben, Gad, in the east part of Manasseh, the river here serves as the boundary. They don't come over into Ammon. They don't mess with Moab. They don't mess with Edom. All right there. They had to help the rest conquer. What was the consequences for not helping the other tribes conquer the rest of the land? Does anybody remember? They all stay in the same spot. In other words, if these ready, valiant, able-bodied military men here do not come over and help conquer all of this on the other side of the Jordan, they would not receive this land and they would be lumped in with the rest of them, which means smaller inheritance for everybody. Now, if you have the choice between a greater inheritance or a smaller inheritance, which one are you choosing? Exactly. So that's the reason it worked out for both parties that way. They get their own section. They get the section that's going to keep the family business going. And also, they're not infringing upon anybody else. There's no ill will. Why, if you guys just would have fought with us, we'd have more room, you know, kind of thing. There's none of that going on there. So, that's where we left off. We're going to deal with that in verse 18 of chapter 3. Then I commanded you at that time saying, The Lord your God, Yahweh your Elohim, has given you this land to possess it, to inherit it. All your valiant men, all your able-bodied, all, all your guys that can fight is the idea, shall cross over armed before your brothers, the sons of Israel. But your wives and your little ones and your livestock and remember, this is kind of tongue-in-cheek. I know that you have much livestock. Remember we talked about that in Numbers because that was the problem of why they needed to settle? Okay, I'm the only one that finds that funny. Shall remain in your cities which I have given you. 
until the Lord gives rest to your fellow countrymen as to you. And they also possess, they also inherit the land which the Lord your God will give them beyond the Jordan. Then you may return every man to his inheritance, to his possession, which I have given you. In other words, here's the motivation to get the job done, is the idea. Stick with them. They inherit their stuff. You inherit your stuff. Everybody's great. So verse 21, I commanded Joshua at that time saying, now watch this. Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings, Og and Sihon, okay? He says here, so the Lord shall do to all the kingdoms into which you are about to cross. Now what is Moses doing? Moses is taking aside his second in command, who is going to become the first in command, and is trying to teach him a very valuable leadership lesson. Just as... God has done this, he will do as he's promised for you. Very important. Now, why is that important? Put your finger here or your Bible string or whatever you got here in Deuteronomy 3 and turn over to Joshua 1. Joshua chapter 1. Joshua's assuming command and there's some things that go on. And here's what the Lord tells Joshua, starting chapter 1, verse 3. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads I have given to you, just as I spoke to Moses. Now notice that. What is that? That is a reaffirmation of the land promise. That's exactly what that is. Just because leadership has changed hands doesn't mean that the promises of God have stopped. That's really, really important. Really important for us to get. It was really important for Joshua at this time because now he's got over 2 million people that he's responsible for in leading faithfully. Huge responsibility. So he says here, verse 4, from the wilderness that is in Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea towards the setting of the sun will be your territory. Now remember what we talked about, Lebanon. It's going to become more pertinent in what we're looking at here is this idea of this land right here. Lebanon is this section right here. From here all the way over to the Euphrates is what's going to be conquered, is what's going to be given to you. God has promised all of it. Now we know, if for no other reason, just looking at this map of where the 12 tribes settled, that they never occupied the full extent of the land. And I've said this before, but it's important to realize, when you are reading through the books of Daniel, Revelation, Matthew 24, those types of things, you've got to have fixed in your mind, and this is why the Bible set up the way that it is with the promises early on in Genesis so that they carry throughout the entire scriptures. The land promise has not been fulfilled. It is the very thing that all of prophetic history rests upon, is the fulfillment of them occupying that entire expanse of land. It's extremely important. So notice he gives in the boundaries here. And this idea in verse 4, everybody see the Hittites? Everybody see that? those people? If you want an interesting study, get a Bible dictionary sometime and look up the Hittites and find out how they became common knowledge to the archaeological community, to the Indiana Jones people. Find out how they became a common understanding to people because beforehand the Bible was severely criticized by scholars because of the Hittites. 
We don't have any record of these people. We don't know anything about these people. This is a figment of imagination. They're talking about it, but they don't exist anywhere. And then all of a sudden, in the beginning of the 1900s, there was a discovery. And it was so huge that all the criticisms against conservative Bible-holding scholars, it just stopped immediately. It was insane to see it. It's like they all hit a brick wall because they couldn't argue anymore with all the evidence that they found. Uh, Very, very uh, interesting. Um, Very interesting. In fact, let me talk about it just a little bit. Um, They actually found when they unearthed, uh, in fact, Mitch, do we have something that's bigger that will show us over with the Persian Gulf and all that, like the whole extent of the land? Do we have that? That map? No. Yeah, over, there we go. Over in this direction right here, see this? This is largely where they unearthed some of the information about the Hittites. It was actually a German archaeologist that did it. He led two expeditions over there, uh, 1912 to 15, I think, and then 1915 to 17, like he went back the same year, something like that. I can't remember his name. I couldn't pronounce it even if I could. Uh, But anyway, he led two groups over there. They unearthed thousands, not, not just a few, thousands of these cuneiform tablets. And what they were is they were title deeds to real estate and property. And the way they found it was because this is the way that the Hittites were bargaining and doing deals in between one another. They found a whole heap in a hole somewhere that had been perfectly preserved by the sand that was on top of it, okay? So God is the coolest in the world, right? He really is. Perfectly preserved, all these Hittite title deeds, This person owns this. This person owns this. And it was all in between the tribe of the Hittites. And it wasn't just one or two or a hundred or even a thousand. It was like 10,000 different deeds. In fact, the word that was used for it described in the Greek for it is the word hypostasis. And it's the idea of having an ownership or a title deed. It's used, I think, one time in Hebrews chapter 3, talking about the rights that we have as being children of God which is very interesting. We actually have the title deed of our salvation that he has ratified for us. So it's really, really a cool little discovery to think about. And then after 1917, all criticism stopped because you had this overwhelming evidence. Uh, There's been a couple of books that have been written about that. Merrill Unger has written a book. It's kind of older. It's called Archaeology in the Bible. Excellent. Fantastic. Uh, There's also a new one that's come out that has Randall Price. Does anybody know who Randall Price is? Okay, Randall Price is a Dallas grad from the old school. And I don't know, Pastor Steve might actually know him. Uh, Randall Price uh, taught at Liberty for a while, and so I had him as a professor for some of my classes. Uh, But he's been over to Israel, you know, like something crazy like 900 times. I mean, it's just ridiculous how much that man's been over there. And all he does is study the temple and the specifics surrounding that and do archaeological excavations. And so I think Zondervan recently commissioned him to write a book, and it just came out a couple of months ago from what I saw. And it's all of these things that when you read through the Bible, it starts in Genesis, when you read through the Bible, and it talks about certain places or things or uh, instruments for worship or whatever it is, he will go through and he will list for you where these things have been found in the Middle East and the evidence for them that we have just today. So it's, it's, it's extremely interesting because what it does is it further heightens the credibility of the Bible and any skeptics or agnostics or atheists or anything like that that want to come against it, it, it really leaves them without a leg to stand on. So if you're ever looking for more solid, credible, not you just need to live by faith, kind of more evidence to what you're dealing with, that really is a very interesting uh, resource to have. Um, out of all the books I have, I don't have that one. But 
It's important to know. So anyway, sorry. Verse 5, we're dealing with Joshua. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I've been with Moses, I will be with you. Now that had to help, didn't it? You saw how I worked with Moses? I'm going to be with you in the same way. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession, inheritance of the land, which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. I heard you the first time, Lord, right? No, no, he's telling him. You're going to be in a situation you need to be very strong and courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This verse right here, verse 7, 1, 7, keep that in your mind, Joshua 1, 7. Keep it in your mind because when we get into chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, we are going to see the bare bones of that. This is a communicating the same thing to the next leader. We're going to see where Moses lets all the people know how this needs to happen. Verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it for then you will, make your, you, you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Now pause. Does anybody know what verse 8 sounds like? Let me read it one more time. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Anybody know? Psalm what? No, not Psalm 119. That's the heavens declares glory and the fullness thereof. It's not, that's not that. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Everybody familiar with that one? Yeah, notice. The psalmist, it wasn't original to the psalmist. The psalmist is like, I just write down what God wrote to, jo- to Joshua, right? That's good. It's good stuff. Good to memorize too. Where does success come from? Meditating on God's law. And we all get weirded out. We're the church. We're not under law. You're exactly right. But did they have any inkling of the church at that time? No, all they had was the law of God. What are they essentially saying? Meditating on his word. Why do we meditate on his word, right? So that we will be like a a tree planted by streams, constantly being able to draw the nourishment. Leaf never withers. When we need to bear fruit, we bear it. Why? Because you're plugged directly into the source. Valuable, Valuable advice and information from two sources. So let's turn back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Chapter 3. So notice verse 22. Here's what Moses finishes telling Joshua at this time. Do not fear them. For the Lord your God is the one fighting for you. Man, that's a good verse, right? You talk about taking lipstick and writing it on your mirror. There is one. Right? Do not fear them. The Lord's fighting for you. The Lord's got you. He's going to take care of you. Verse 23. I also pleaded with the Lord at that time saying. So now Moses is communicating to the people that he had a conversation with Yahweh in which he is pleading for something. Now notice that he's communicating this to the people. Remember, he's recounting their history because he's trying to set them up mentally for getting ready to cross over into the land 
so that they will possess it and not be afraid. They won't make the same mistake as the first generation made. Look what it says. I also pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, verse 24, Oh, Yahweh Elohim, right? In fact, I, I love it because uh, right here it's L-O-R-D. Everybody see that it's capital L, lowercase O-R-D? We would normally look at that and we'd say, oh, I remember that. That means Adonai is what that means, right? Or we, we, does everybody remember Adonai when we talked about that, when Abraham used it, Genesis 15? Oh, Adonai, how will I know that I will possess this land? How will I know that you will give me offspring? And it's this idea of calling master. What's interesting here is why they've translated this L-O-R-D is odd because in the text, notice what you have for God there. What's, what's God look like? It's all capitals. Is God usually all capitals in what we see throughout the Old Testament? It's not. Look back up at verse 22. Do not fear them, for the Lord your God, Yahweh your Elohim, capital G, lowercase O-D. Everybody see how that works? It's very interesting. Anytime that they have in the Hebrew text, and, and if you read the beginning of your Bible, the, the translators kind of line out why they did certain translations the way that they did, especially with the names of God, it becomes very interesting. Here, whenever they use capital L, lowercase O-R-D, and then they use capital G, capital O, capital D, what they're actually doing here is they are emphasizing the name of Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. In other words, it's not Yahweh Elohim. It's just flat out in all big shiny Las Vegas letters, Yahweh. He is appealing to him on a personal face-to-face -face conversation, pleading, begging of him something. And so he approaches him in a very personal manner. It says here, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. Now, let's read the rest of it, and I want to show you something. For, here's the explanation, what God, lowercase g-o-d, everybody see that? Why would he bring that up? Did Egypt have many gods? They did. So notice how he's relating this. All this other garbage that people believe in, you're not like that. You're totally different than what's going on. Notice what he says here. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Let me tell you what Moses is saying. He's saying, mm, God, it's like barbecue is what he's saying. Coming into this land is so sweet. We've been brought in. You're fighting for us, knocking everybody down, giving us strength we never had before. We're doing crazy battle plans. We didn't even plan it. You're just working with us. Guy needed a sword. He found a sword. Head came off. That's great. We love it. We're conquering and killing everything, like you said. And the spoils are oh so good, right? Now, get this. Now that Moses is seeing how good it is, and now he's seeing exactly the full extent of what God is doing amongst these people. Does everybody get this? He's having thoughts now. In other words, his job as a herald to the people was to tell them about the promises that would be fulfilled. That was his job. Keep them on task, keep that before him. Now that he's stepping into the land, he's going, whoa, this is so much better than what even I was telling you guys that I believed at the time. Everybody see that? So it's so, so good. Look what he says. Verse 25, let me, I pray, cross over 
and see the fair land that is beyond the Jordan, that good hill country, and Lebanon. Notice they bring up Lebanon again. Now notice what Moses is asking. Moses is asking, let me cross over right here and even go as far as being able to step foot into this section right here. Oh God, now that I'm seeing what you're doing, it's all coming to fruition. It's amazing beyond what it could compare. Please relent from what you pronounced against me and not crossing over the land and please let me go. Please let me go. Now does everybody remember that incident? Everybody remember? Second time the children of Israel needed water and God told him to do what? He said, speak to the rock. And if you remember, Moses said, you guys are so rebellious. Did you believe the Lord? And he hit the rock and he was told not to strike it, but to speak to it. And what he did was he messed up what God was doing in typology in the scripture. That rock we find out later, I believe it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Chapter 10, I think it is, that rock is a type of Christ. The first time when the children of Israel needed rock, it was smitten by Moses. He struck the rock with the staff and it burst forth water. That was in keeping with the type. Why? Because the first time that Jesus comes, he was struck down. But in the second time, he was supposed to speak, to call out to the rock for salvation, to call out to the rock for provision. And instead, in his anger, he struck the rock. Now watch how he describes this here. It's very interesting. He says here, verse 26, but the Lord was angry with me on your account. He just can't let it go, can he? It's their fault. It's their fault. He's a, he's a victim of his circumstances. Maybe I don't know. And would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough, speak to me no longer of this matter. In other words, you've already been judged and I've already given your sentence. Now, was this fair? What do you think? When Moses disobeyed God, was this fair? I would argue with you that it's not fair. And here's the reason why. Let's think about it. What is the consequence for disobeying God? Death. So the fact that he got to live, but he just didn't get to see the land. It really wasn't fair, was it? Moses should have died on the spot for messing it up. But notice, God in His grace wouldn't let him see the land, but spared his life. It's amazing. See, we have to remember how serious sin is. And especially, Moses is messing up typology about Jesus. Did he know that at that time? No. But he didn't need to. All he needed to know is, what has God said? That's what I need to do. I have to pay attention. Pay attention to that. Couldn't let his anger get the best of him. Anger is never an excuse to disobey. It never is. And when we want to blame our anger for the reason why we've disobeyed, we become more of a secular psychologist than we have a biblicist. This is the stuff, anybody, everybody heard of B.F. Skinner? Anybody heard of B.F. Skinner? Okay, B.F. Skinner's big thing is there is no God. We are not specially made. If you want somebody to be a certain way, let me know and I will dictate their environment and I will give you the type of person that you want to have. So his whole thing was the way that we operate is contingent upon our environment. Now you think that you don't operate like that, but when you get mad about something, don't we often blame other people for why we did what we did? See, it's not my fault. I'm a victim of my environment. Everybody see how that works? We do that all the time. You work with those people. And when they bring those excuses, you want to smack them across the face. Why? Because they're not taking personal responsibility. All that comes from B.F. Skinner. 
We think more along those lines than what we probably think. What does the Bible teach? The Bible teaches totally something different. You are responsible to an almighty God who has given him, who has given you his word clearly that you may know him and do the things according to what he said. Totally different philosophy of thinking. So I'm sure you guys, that, that won't cost you anything extra. I'm, I'm giving that out for free. So but notice, don't talk to me anymore about this. Verse 27, God does show mercy in this because he knows Moses' heart. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes to the west and north and south and east and see it with your eyes for you shall not cross over this Jordan. Uh, can we go back to the, to the uh, map that had the, where the tribes have settled, please? Mitch, you are a, a sweet man. Thank you for being willing to operate in all this. Mount Pisgah is about right in here, okay? So he's going to, there's Mount Nebo. We can see that on there. Mount Pisgah is about right here. He's going to be able to get up here and he's going to be able to see over into this land. God's at least going to let him do it. And what that's actually talking about in that verse is the very last chapter of Deuteronomy where Moses goes up and sees the land and then he dies. That's it. He's done. He's no longer useful to God. He's, he's run his course. And remember what we saw when we looked at that a while back, there was nothing wrong with his body, nothing wrong with his eyesight, but because of his sin and disobedience, his life was done. He didn't get to continue forward. He was done. So uh, let's go back to this. Verse 28. But charge Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him, for he will go across at the head of this people, and he will give them as an inheritance the land which you will see. So we remain in the valley opposite Beth Peor. Now, this is southwest of Heshbon. If Heshbon is located right here, we're talking about right down in this region. They're there in Beth Peor. Now, here's a question. Remember, Moses is talking to everybody. He's gathered them all together, and he's recounting what has just happened in our recent history, the mistakes of the first generation the conquering that's gone on, the 140 miles that they've conquered, the inheritance that's been already dished out, the fact that the fighting men are going to help to conquer the rest of the land. The Lord is going to fight for us. Joshua is going to be the next guy in charge. We need to strengthen and encourage him. And he speaks of his failure and being able to continue on with them. And he publicly addresses all the people with that. Why? They're all on the same page. Okay, Do you, Can you elaborate? Okay, honest answer, I love it. Why? Why, why, why would Moses, of all things to bring up, have you noticed the things that we know about that Moses didn't bring up? Everybody remember the, the situation with Balaam and Balak, the donkey that speaks and the whole deal like that, you know, pray and prophesy against Israel and they're coming through our land. You notice that Moses doesn't bring any of that up. He doesn't bring any of that instance up. You notice he doesn't bring up whenever Dathan and all those guys come against him and speak against him and God cracks the earth open and swallows them up and all their families and everything and shuts it back over the top of them. Doesn't bring that up. Why does he bring up the instance of a situation where he is going to be missing out on being able to cross over the Jordan into the promised land? Why? Why? Of all things that he would bring up, the things that he omits from this recounting of their history and the things that he brings up, why would he bring up that personal incident? Anybody know? It's a personal what? It's a personal reminder not to sin. Mary, would you say? It's confession and obedience. What else do we think? It, it's a learning tool. Exactly. To not sin. It is. 
get this. And this is huge for Moses, especially when you think about it in the New Testament, you read through how the Pharisees thought about Abraham and Moses and David, okay? They had this very high, put them on a pedestal. Get it. Moses is being a good leader and he's saying, don't be like me. Isn't that interesting? Out of everything that he could be saying to these people, I'm just a man and I've messed up and I'm not going to be able to get in there like you guys have. I messed it up. Don't be like me. What a humble response. Anybody think that it's weird that like today when we first saw Moses, his reaction was something's going bad. I'll just kill you and bury you in the sand. But whenever the children of Israel got the message from the spies and they wanted to kill Moses and remove him and all that stuff, do you remember his and Aaron's response? They fell down on their faces before the Lord. Why didn't Moses like, well, you want to handle that? Let's go outside. You know, why didn't he do that? Everybody see how God has developed Moses into this He didn't have to be brash. He didn't have to be a brute. He didn't have to go to Gold's Gym or anything like that or be a nasty guy at all. He just had to be humble and submissive to the Lord. And when he wasn't, he wanted to make the most of the opportunity using it as a teaching component. This cost me when I didn't follow exactly what God said. Don't be like me. I think that's amazing. I think it's humbling. And here's the reason why. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now, O Israel, does everybody see that there's an immediate shift? Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to what? What's the word? Perform. I could ride this horse forever. Notice it's not fill your heads with knowledge and be smart people. It is let your lives reflect the truth of God. It needs to be part and parcel of who you are, the decisions that you make, the direction that you go, the way that you raise your kids, the way that you deal with your finances, the way that you prepare food, whatever it is, the Lord is at the forefront of all of it. Pay attention to these things, to perform them, So that, and remember, in the NASB, anytime you see the word so that, there's your reason. He's getting ready to give you a reason for why he just said. So that you may what? What's it say? Live. Who doesn't have a Bible? Okay. Everybody, everybody, I'm asking the question. Come on, don't fall asleep. Just because there's less people in here, don't fall asleep. Live. So that you may live. Notice what it says. And go in and take possession and inherit the land which the Lord, which Yahweh, the Elohim of your fathers, is giving you. Have we seen that language today? Notice it's consistent. It's the same. He's the same God that promised it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the same God that called Moses at the beginning that did it at the end. God is still doing what God does according to his word without flaw. He has not changed. The word you use for that, the $10 Scrabble word you use for that is God is immutable. He does not change. He is immutable. He doesn't say one thing one day and because of the same circumstances, say something different the next day. It doesn't happen. For him to say something different, circumstances would have had to have changed a command differently. So notice verse 2. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you nor take away from it that you may keep that you the word means to guard it or to watch over 
is the idea that you're paying if you're guarding something you're paying special attention to detail if you're watching if you watch over your children you're watching them even when they don't think you're looking aren't you that type of idea that you may keep it watch over it guard it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command which I command you now why is this important Go back to the thinking real quick. Remember, the way that Deuteronomy is set up is what is known as a suzerain-vassal treaty. A suzerain is a high king. Vassals are lesser kings, okay? They come into this agreement. The suzerain promises to give protection, provision. I'll take care of you. If the lesser kings, the vassals, will commit their allegiance to the greater king. You commit your allegiance to me, I'll take care of you. That's how it works. And this wasn't just here in Deuteronomy. This was a common practice back in that time. And this is how God is choosing to communicate with them in terms that they would have understood because of their surroundings, environment, geography, the whole thing. They would have gotten this concept. But notice what it says in verse 2. Not to add to, you shall not add, or you shall not take away. Why? Because vassals do not dictate the terms of the agreement. Now, let me give you a a picture of this. How many of you got to dictate the details of your mortgage? Anybody? The bank handed you something, you go, well, you know, that interest rate's just not going to work for me. I think you ought to lower it to here. That'll work out real good. What would the bank say? Sure, we love you. We don't care about making money at all. Our job is to make you happy and comfortable. Is that the bank? (laughs) <laughs> yeah well where do you bank everybody get your pen out <laughs> exactly no it's not at all the idea is here's what we're offering take it or leave it well Yahweh in a gracious form is the way that he loves Israel he dictates the terms only his way is true it makes way more sense with God than it does with banks I promise you that so notice he says here you shall not add to the word which I commanded you nor take away from it that you may keep, guard, watch over the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Now, we have to stop here because what we're getting ready to get into is going to take a lot more than just the three minutes that we have left. But understand this. Uh, I wanted to give a summary, so I'll just read it to you. This is a man speaking, exhorting Israel out of his own failure. This is a lesson that he learned the hard way and a blessing that he would not experience. This is so important to get because regardless if you're talking about Israel's relationship to the law or you're talking about the church's relationship to the law of liberty that we have, the law of freedom that we've been given, the new life in Christ that we have, the command to love one another as he's loved us, it doesn't change the fact that it's our responses to the Almighty telling us what is true. It's that, it really is that simple. Is it difficult to keep it all together and to hold on to it and to actually obey it? Yeah, it is. But that's why the knowledge wasn't meant to just sit and stew in our heads. I promise you if it does and we're not actively performing God's word, we will find ourselves adding to and taking away from God's word. Prime example. In the Old Testament, we have no mention of Pharisees whatsoever. But something happened in the intertestamental time which is about 400 years that took place to where the necessity of the Pharisees came on the scene. And probably the reason was is because the people were largely in exile and therefore they didn't have the law. 
So they had people that needed to be reiterating the law to them. What just so happens in order to be a Pharisee, you had to have the Old Testament memorized. You could easily recall it, but they did something that was very dangerous. They had something called the Talmud. Have we ever heard of the Talmud? And they did, what is the Talmud? Do you know? It's Jewish. You're exactly right. Sorry. Did I get you in the eye? I didn't mean to. Sorry. There you go. Okay. But well, I haven't used this yet. I thought, you know what? I might use it. I haven't used it very much. There we go. Um, exactly. It's rabbinical teachings. But the problem with the Jews is that as it moved forward, Judaism became a thing. It wasn't no more where Israelites were Jewish, were Yahweh followers. It now became a religion. And every religion is defined by one basic aspect. What do I have to do in order for God to accept me? That's religion. That's religion. It's so funny because somebody came up to me today and they said, uh, now listen, I know sometimes you say things about Catholics. I said, yeah. And she said, I've got my Catholic friend with me today. Are you going to talk about Catholics? And I said, no, I don't think we're going to touch on Catholics today. And she goes, good. I don't have to pray during the service. That's great. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay, but religion is always telling you what you must do to be accepted. Well, what happened with Judaism is Judaism started to take these rabbinical writings known as the Talmud, and they started to take it and they started to place it on top of the Scriptures. So you could never tell what God had really said anymore You only knew what people had said about God. Now, you think that's a strange concept. It's no different than how our legal system works today. When is the last time that you ever heard a case being presented and the lawyer or the judge goes back to the Constitution of the United States and says, here's the original document for how the situation should be handled? No, not at all. They go to case studies. How did this guy judge or rule in this situation when this person argued this and this person argued this? Well, that came from going back to this case that had to be handled when this went on and this went on. And they have volumes and volumes of case studies. My brother-in-law is a lawyer down in Evansville. And I just asked him, I thought it'd be fun. I said, in all the time that you had to go to law school and spend all that time studying, did you ever once touch the Ten Commandments? And he kind of looked at me like it was the strangest thing ever. And he goes, no. And I said, that's interesting because everything you're trying to argue is based off of those 10 principles. What the Talmud did essentially was take God's word and cover it up. So we're operating on a lot of schemes that we've come up with or a lot of decisions that we thought looked really good that somebody else ruled in favor of. And because they did that and because it holds some sort of earthly authority, therefore that makes it right. The beautiful thing about when Jesus Christ came in and why the Pharisees were so mad at him, and even very early on, I think as early as Matthew 7 or 8, they wanted to kill him, is because he took the Talmud and he got rid of it so that you could actually see this is what God said. Exactly, you forsake God's law for the sake of your own traditions. And here's the amazing thing that you find out when you remove the Talmud, the rabbinical teachings away from the Word of God. The law was never a way to earn salvation. It was never communicated that way. It was always communicated as a way that Israel could have fellowship with their Creator. Very different. The law takes on a whole new understanding in religious Christian thinking when you realize it's not about acceptance. It's about intimacy. Everybody see how that could change your mind about it? Very powerful. 
But that's why we have to take the text for what it says. That's why this Bible study thing I want to do with you guys in the fall is so important. Because we just need to be concerned with the text and nothing else. That's all we need to worry about. So, any thoughts or questions before we pray and wrap up? Everybody's good? Good. We're going to get into some really uh, raunchy and spicy stuff next week. Uh, some incidents of stuff they participated in. You go, woo, I don't know if I can handle that. Be messed up. So let's pray, though, before we end. Father, thank you for our time together, realizing that your word is all that we need and being able to look at a great man of Scripture uh, that you've raised up and built into like Moses and realize that even he was very uh, aware of his failures, uh, understanding that it cost him uh, great things. And when he finally saw these things coming to fruition, it grieved him greatly to where he begged of you. Father, we may not see our inheritance now. We might not see glory now. But, Father, keep us faithful regardless. Help us to keep this example fresh in our minds. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody.